0: Alright. Amen. (laughs) The phrase amen in Hebrew means uh, so be it. So what a beautiful way to wrap up our worship and head us towards Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, if you guys want to take out your Bibles or if uh, you're a child of technology, you can take your idle phone or your Satan song and you can type in Hebrews chapter 12 and you will most likely arrive there and Uh, whatever version you prefer. Uh, We'll be in the New King James this morning. And as you guys make your way that direction, let me remind you what we've studied since uh, October is that the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And so the writer goes to painstaking extents through ten chapters to show the readers of this letter uh, just why Jesus is better and who he is better than. And so he begins with Uh, prophets he then transitions to angels and moves on to priests and Moses and Abraham and there's all these people and all these positions and titles that he's showing us that Jesus is better than all these things and by the time we uh, head towards chapter 10 what we see is the writer even says that Jesus is better than the tabernacle the tabernacle was the very place where the presence of God would dwell among his people And so as God wanted to interact, he wanted to be a part of their lives, he came down, poured his spirit into a building which essentially signified Jesus being on earth. And so as we arrive in this place, we see that Jesus is a better tabernacle. His desire was to be with and move among his people. He then became a better sacrifice. This is what chapter 10 essentially tells us, is that he is the better sacrifice, that all these other things, all these other animals and these blood sacrifices that are so hard about reading through the Old Testament, all this pointed back to him as the Christ being the perfect sacrifice, the one that would last for all of eternity. And as the writer is sharing this with people that grew up in the Hebrew tradition, what he says in chapter 11 essentially is that it's going to take faith to get there. You're going to have to take a leap of faith. And he he doesn't just leave them with this idea of it's going to take faith. He goes back to the Old Testament and he says, look, throughout the Old Testament, there are these heroes of the faith. So chapter 11 of Hebrews is known as the Hall of Faith. All these Old Testament figures that spoke of a faith, a belief, and a promise that God gave them. A promise of something better. The promise was the new covenant. Jeremiah shared it in chapter 31, but this All pointed towards Jesus, this better covenant, this better promise that it was by his blood that we would be saved for all of eternity. And so we have this promise that these who didn't receive the promise, but they banked on it, they counted on it, they knew how good God was and that he was going to deliver. And so we arrive now headed down the home stretch in chapter 11 with a tale of two analogies. We looked at it last week. The first, uh, knowing that this life where we've got persecution and we've got trials and we've got challenges, uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. (laughs) We are in this thing for the long haul. The word in the New Testament that comes up over and over again is the word endure, endure, endure. And so we see this, this analogy of it being a marathon. And what the writer communicates right there in verse one is in light of this being a marathon, you need to lay aside the weights. Don't bring around the backpack full of additional weight with you. It's hard enough the way it is. And then he says, let the sin that so easily ensnares you be put off as well. The things that trip us up, the things that we allow in our life to trip us along the path for the enemy to have a field day with us. So oftentimes, what happens for us is we come to accept Christ, that we uh, confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus is the Christ, and we've got this salvation experience, and most of the time we have this misconception that it's a snap of the fingers, and everything that was the old man goes completely away. And there are some things that do fall off quickly. There are things that happen uh, quickly, and yet uh, many times it takes a, a lifetime. It takes a time as we grow in this relationship. So as we say, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, that you're the Son of God, you died for my sins, we are justified. That's what Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, we are justified by faith. That means positionally I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, I am saved for all of eternity. But what we all know is um, practically uh, I'm working out this salvation with fear and trembling. It is by faith, the faith that I grow. That's the process of sanctification. We are being set apart. We are being made holy. The Lord is working things out in my life. This is the, the process that's going to happen until I draw my last breath. And here's the beautiful thing, though. As I have been justified, I am being sanctified, uh, I one day will be glorified. That's the promise. This is what John communicates in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is this is glorification this is the end game the end of the race it's all uh, done and for all of eternity we are now in glorified bodies no longer being bogged down with everything that we've had to endure up to this point point. and so justification sanctification and then uh, glorification But notice with me what John communicates. It goes along with the second analogy that we are children of God. We are his children. And so this is the second analogy. And as a good father would do, he is chastening us. He's disciplining us. He's shaping us up in this race as we go. And what he says in verse 11 is now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so if we're willing to be trained by the chastening, then it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That, that if we desire to have righteousness and, and peace in our life, then we need to allow the painful learnings. And many of us can attest, these learnings, they hurt. I mean, there's some chastening. There's a few of you wooden spoon survivors. You know there's no chastening that happens that not like, man, that stings a little bit. And yet if we allow ourselves to be trained by it, Peaceable fruit of righteousness sounds pretty darn good to me. Now, verse 12, as we pick up where we left off last week. Therefore, in light of all this, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. And so what the writer picks up on in this 12th verse is in light of everything you've been delivered from, in light of the chasing that you've received in this journey that you're on, now come alongside others. You're going to come along other people uh, in your journey that have dislocated joints. And what you guys know is that there is no race that can be ran with dislocated ankles, dislocated knees, or dislocated hips. Practically, it doesn't work that way. And so there are people that you're going to come along that are going to have uh, parts of their body, their lower extremities that are dislocated. They're completely lame along the way. And so you're going to have an opportunity to come alongside them. Uh, An example of this, Acts chapter 3. The apostle Peter is traveling to the temple with John his buddy. And as they're headed to the temple, they're going to preach the gospel along the way. And they're headed in the eastern gate, the gate that is called Beautiful. And as they're making their way into the temple, they come across the lame man who's been there for decades. He's been laying along the roadside. He's been uh, begging for money, begging for his physical well-being for the majority of his life. And as they walk along, uh, Peter in verse 4 says to him, Look at us. And by the way, as we come along and across people who are struggling, what you'll find is one of the first things they'll struggle to do is make eye contact. It is difficult for them to look up. It is a struggle. They're being beat down by life. And so Peter, knowing this, he says, look at us. And the man looks up and he says famously in verse 6, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. As Luke is writing this, he is a doctor, this phrase, "received strength, meant literally that his joints went back into place, that his ankles were dislocated, and he was not able to stand. And in that moment, his feet received strength. They were put back into the socket by God. He takes the man by the hand, and for the first time, perhaps in his entire life, he's able to go and worship in fellowship with everybody else. He'd been right on the outside of the gates of the temple, and yet he couldn't go in because his feet were lame. And so this man now receiving strength from God, God now getting glorified, and yet as I read that story, it's always gripped me that this man is along the path that goes into the eastern gate, directly into the temple. In the last week of Jesus' life, just that by itself, he would have had to pass this man multiple times on the way into the temple. Jesus, the Son of God, would have walked right past this man with dislocated ankles. Why didn't he heal him? Why didn't he reach out his hand? Was it because he wasn't capable? He, he was God in the flesh. He passed by this guy begging. Did he not see him? And I would share with you that there's not a chance that Jesus didn't recognize that guy. And I believe with a smile on his face, a little grin, he walked by knowing that the time wasn't right, that the timing was going to be right. It wasn't his place to step in and heal this man because this was a healing that was set up, that was put right there in place for Peter and for John to reach out their hand and this man would receive strength. And as a result, the entire temple was in a frenzy. Peter's able to give a gospel message that literally thousands of people come to know Christ as their Savior all because of this one incident, you see. And this is where we are at so often. That God has put someone in our path. He has put someone that, yeah, He could use lots of other people. He could use lots of other situations and circumstances to make this come about. And yet, He didn't. Because it's it's for us to come alongside. It's for us to... To grab a hold of someone's hand and say, let me take you to the temple. Let me bring you into a place where you can worship, where you can praise, where you can be a part of a family for the first time. Let me come alongside you. And so the Lord puts people in our path. And as he does it, he will get even more glory. You see, this is what God is always up to. He is always about getting the most glory, but also seeing the most people come to know him as possible. And so it's a beautiful story here. Acts chapter 3. Now, continuing in verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so again, remember this analogy of a race. And what you know, if you've been in a race or you've watched a race, is that there's always someone or something to pursue. There's always a goal getting to the finish line. There's always someone ahead of you to be able to run after. And so this Word is used to bring us back to this mindset of of running running the race, but knowing that there is something to pursue. And the something that's mentioned here in verse 14 is holiness. This is what the Lord has put out there in front of us. It is a pursuit for holiness. The Lord takes holiness very, very seriously. And for many of us, the idea of holiness and uh, purity, it kind of creeps us out a little bit. Because we we correlate holiness with weirdness. And yet, uh, nowhere in Scripture does the Lord say, you know, you've uh, exercised enough holiness today. I think you can just dial it back a little. I think it's fine if you just take a little break on the purity and the holiness. He never once communicates that. Instead, the idea is we are constantly working to attain holiness. By the power of the Spirit, He is... Flushing things out by the washing of the water of the word. He is cleaning us from the inside out. And so this lifelong journey, like sanctification, we're pursuing holiness. And here's the, the wonderful thing. As we pursue holiness, what the Lord says is that I want you to do this for one big reason, so that you can have peace. But as we pursue holiness, you will find peace along the way. Peace not only internally, but also externally with others. Now, it doesn't mean that the people in your life are going to be peaceful back to you. But what it does mean is that you will have peace in the middle of that situation. It means that in that spot, you're going to know what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. This is really our our charge here in this pursuit of holiness as well as peace. He says in verse 18 of Romans 12, If it is at all possible... As much as depends upon you, live peaceably among all men. But our charge is to do what is in uh, my power, (laughs) what I can do. I can't affect how someone else receives it, but what I am convicted about more often than not is, uh, when I get angry that I've been trying to be holy, and I'm trying to do a good job, is that I realize that um, I haven't actually pursued nearly as much holiness as I want to give myself credit for But I've still got a lot of skeletons in that closet. There's a lot of things that I'm trying to manipulate and get for my own good. But when the Lord says, I want you to just pursue peace. I want you to pursue holiness. And then allow him to actually do the work. And so what we know we get from this verse is that we can try. We can make an effort to pursue holiness. And as we do, peace will be the fruit that comes about. Now, verse 15 Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And so here we see that uh, as you go through this story that we began at the beginning of chapter 12, it, it went a little something like this for a quick recap. Uh, We are in this faith journey, in this process, we're surrounded in this race by a cloud of witnesses. There are people from our past that have gone on before us. There's Old Testament heroes, and man, they're cheering us on. Go for it. You know, we've got your back. We're cheering you on along the way. And we get to uh, have our eyes fixed on Jesus along the way, looking unto the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one that we look up to. And as we go, we're laying aside weights and sins that so easily trip us up and ensnare us, and then the Lord is going to come alongside as a good dad, and he's going to coach us up. If you've ever played sports, know what it's like to be coached up a little bit. The guy that I always think of in my mind uh, was a guy, summer basketball, uh, Steve Bennett. He was a coach down at Evansville, and he would yell at me from across the gym regularly, Ashley, pick it up! Let's go! I like, oh, coach saw me again, loafing over here on the sideline, but what he told me was, If I stop yelling, it's because I gave up on you, boy. Let's go, right? So I knew that his chastening was one that uh, had a belief in me, that I could do it, that that I could succeed. This is our Father. He is coaching us up. He knows that we can do it. He knows we've got it in us, and so he's coming alongside us, coaching us up. And yet, here's the warning in verse 15. Look carefully lest the root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. What you know about a discipline is this. That if you allow a root of bitterness to grow up, it affects everything. That if I look at the discipline and I'm, I'm only focused on that. Why me? Why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to be put in this spot that before long uh, I begin to question God. I begin to question His grace. I believed, I gave my heart to you, and now I'm dealing with this. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus shares a parable about uh, an owner of a vineyard. I'll give you the synopsis, you can turn there if you want, but for the sake of time, uh, here's the here's the story. Jesus shares this about a man who owns a vineyard, and he's got a lot of work that needs to be done. And so he goes down to the marketplace, and he hires men. And he gives them his word that I'm going to give you a denarius, a day's wages for your labor if you come and work for me today. And so a group of men, a group of workers come and they they begin to work in the vineyard. And about halfway through the day, the owner of the vineyard looks and sees, boy, there's a lot more work to be done. He goes back to the marketplace and he hires uh, more workers. And he says, come on and work for me and I'll pay you a fair wage. They leave what they're doing in the marketplace. They come and they work for him. It's now down to the last hour of the day. And there's still more work to be done. And so the owner of the vineyard, he goes back to the marketplace. And he says, anybody that's willing to come with me, now's the time to come. And I'll treat you fairly. And so a a handful, a group, they come back and they work the last hour of the day. And now it's time to settle up accounts. And so the owner of the vineyard, he calls forward those that showed up for the last hour. And he gives them a denarius, a day's wages. And boy the guys that have been there all day they start rubbing their hands together like look if he's going to bless these guys like this that were only here for an hour how much more is he going to bless us? And by the time he gets to those men who are there from the very beginning he gives them a denarius. A day's wages. And they immediately are upset. And the owner of the vineyard says look what are you upset about? Our agreement was if you came and worked for me I would give you a day's wages. I've been fair with you. I've treated you exactly as I said. And and the reason you're upset is that you've taken my generosity and you've mistaken it for wickedness. But what has actually happened is your own hearts have deceived you. Your heart is what's wicked in this because I'm free to give to anyone that I desire to give to. And here's the point. That's the grace of God. But the struggle for us is on this race, we'll see other people receiving blessings, other people who we don't think are doing as well as us, others like, Lord, they haven't even been to church in years. They don't pray like I pray. I've given my life to you, and yet you've blessed them. But the Lord says, my promise was to take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and my righteousness, and all the other things will be added. You spend all your time focused on all the other things that other people receive. And as a result, uh, bitterness creeps in. Frustration creeps in because we question the grace of God. One other place I'll take you is in the book of Ruth. And if you haven't read this beautiful little Old Testament book, but in this spot, as the book begins, we're introduced to Naomi. Uh, She is Ruth's mother-in-law, and she's got a husband. They're living in a foreign country, and she's got two sons who are married to two uh, young ladies, and as she's there in this foreign country, her name Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. But quickly in the story, her husband dies. And and shortly thereafter, both of her sons die. And now she's in this foreign land. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's got these two girls that are now looking up to her, but they're just her daughters-in-law and she tells them, just go away. I, I have nothing left for you. But her daughter-in-law, Ruth, refuses to leave She wants to stand beside her mother-in-law. She loves her enough. She's willing to stick it out with her. And so uh, Ruth and Naomi now make their way back to her homeland, back to Israel. And as they arrive in Ruth chapter uh, 19, the people of Israel, they come out, they greet Naomi. Is this Naomi? Is this pleasant? She's here with us. In verse 20, but she said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. In Hebrew it means bitterness. Call me bitter. Because the Lord has dealt harshly with me. Now if you continue to read in the story, what you'll find is uh, Naomi had some family in that area that they moved back to. In particular, a guy named Boaz who takes a liking to her daughter-in-law Ruth and uh, they get married and eventually they have a child. And his name is uh, Obed. And Naomi is now able to have a grandchild sitting on her knee, an offspring for her to carry her on into the future. But the story, if you stop there, it's not quite as interesting. But if you continue to Matthew chapter 1, you'd read that uh, Obed, he had a son, and they named him Jesse, who had a son, and they named him David, the king. You see, as Naomi was focused on her loss and she allowed bitterness to creep up she missed the fact that she was going to be the great great grandmother to the king of Israel she never read Matthew chapter 1 she didn't know the rest of the story and this is what happens for us so often as, as bitterness takes effect as we get frustrated at God's discipline we cry out why me God but what happens is we completely miss God's plan Because all we can see is our pain. And so for Naomi, she allowed bitterness to get in the way of what God was up to. And thankfully, we get the rest of the story. We get to see God had in mind for her to be in the very lineage of the Messiah himself. Now, back to verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, 4 verse 17, you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And so if you've been reading with us through our Bible study together plan, we've been in Genesis chapter 25 and chapters 27 this past week, and we had the story of Jacob and Esau, these two uh, twin Boys, born to Isaac and Rebekah. And they were warring. Even in the womb, they were fighting with each other. And so Esau, he was the firstborn. He came out first. He was a hairy little guy. And so the way they named kids back then, uh, whatever it looked like, that was the name they gave him. He popped out hairy. And they said, let's call him Esau, which means hairy in Hebrew. And his little brother came out with his uh, hand on his uh, older brother's heel. And so they looked at him and they said, let's call him Jacob." Uh, heel catcher. He's got his hand on his brother's heel. And so little Harry and the heel catcher, they grow up together, constantly at odds with one another. But Esau, he was a man's man. He was a hunter. He loved the outdoors, and Isaac loved him for it because he brought home uh, tasty things. But after one particular hunting trip, uh, Esau comes back home. He's completely famished, and he, he lays himself down, and there's his brother. He's cooking chili over in the corner. And he looks, and he says, oh, Give me some of that red stew. Give me some of that chili. And Jacob, being a crafty guy, a heel catcher, he says, yeah, absolutely. Sell me your birthright, and I'll give you a bowl of chili. And so Esau responds, well, what good is it for me to have a a birthright if I'm going to die anyway? And he sells his birthright for a bowl of chili. Now, I've had some fantastic chili. I mean, some really good chili. I've had some terrible chili as well. But many of you, when we had our chili cook off, you did a fantastic job. But I'm not selling my birthright for no stinking bowl of chili. Here's how much Esau cared about his birthright. And then we fast forward to Genesis 27. And now in this place, uh, Isaac is feeling like he's getting ready to pass off the scene. He wants to bless the oldest of his boys. So he sends Esau off to go uh, find some game and bring him back a delicious meal so he can give him a blessing. Now Jacob and Rebecca, they catch wind of this and so they trick Isaac who can't see very well. They even put a goat fur on Jacob so he would feel like Esau and they end up tricking Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. Now what you need to understand about these two things is um, the birthright was actually the spiritual inheritance that was due the firstborn. The blessing was the physical, the material inheritance that was given to the firstborn. And so as Esau comes back in Genesis 27, verse 38, he has realized now what his brother, the heel catcher, has done to him. And in verse 38, Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing for me? Bless me, me also, O father. And Esau lifted up his voice, and he wept. Don't you have anything for me, any kind of blessing for me? this is how we operate (laughs) so many times we completely forsake the birthright we completely look past all the things that are spiritual and our focus is at least for me far too often on what is the material Lord why don't you bless me why don't you pour out your blessing on me you bless them over here don't you have a blessing for me and what the Lord is saying is look don't don't despise your birthright You've been given the opportunity to be a son, son of a king. And if we focus on the birthright first, the spiritual peace, the promise of Matthew 6.33 that I just quoted, seek first his kingdom of God, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things will be added. If we seek first his kingdom, the birthright, then all the others will be taken care of. And for these Hebrews that the writer is writing to, they're considering walking away from their birthright. They're looking at walking away from the the spiritual blessing that God has given them through the blood of Christ. And what the writer is trying to communicate is if you do that, only bitterness will follow. You're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to get to the end and realize you gave everything up for a pot of chili. You gave it all up for nothing. And so the the writer wants to encourage them to focus instead on the birthright and trust the Lord for the blessing. Now, verse 18, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the sound of the words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, "I am exceedingly afraid and trembling." And so we have now the scene of the Mount Sinai. The law was given on the mountain there, and fire came down from heaven, and the Lord thundered in the sky. And the nation of Israel looked at that and said, Ooh, "We'll have nothing to do with that." Moses, you go ahead. We're going to stand back here. That's really scary. And so Moses, even though he was exceedingly afraid, he had enough faith to go up the mountain and he received the law from the Lord. And this is the law in our lives. I mean, it is, it is impressive. It's powerful. It is, it is daunting. But it is also impossible. We cannot attain it. There are 613 commands in the law of Moses. We can't even keep the top 10 list. We're, we're struggling here just to keep up with a few at the very top of the order. And yet, for the nation of Israel, for these Hebrews that were looking to turn back, what they were looking to do was go back to the mountain to try to attain what was already impossible, what had already been proven that they can't do it, that to touch the mountain meant to die. There was no way they were going to live. The, the law that God gave them was perfect, but perfect at proving that they can't keep it that they needed a Savior, they needed a Messiah. And so over and over again, the nation decided to try to be blessed through God's law to circumvent His grace. But what rules and religion and regulation always do is they bring about bitterness and they bring about death. Which is why, for many of us that grew up in church, what you know is if you find the most religious people, those that wanted to follow the rules the most those almost always end up being the most bitter. It's why churches all over our land uh, dry up and die. Because people want to be religious. They want to uh, have a relationship in this way instead of the relationship that God chose. Don't try to attain and touch the mountain, but instead, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the just men made perfect, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What he's saying is you've camped out around Mount Sinai long enough. You've seen what it produces. It's deadly. Instead, move your tent over to Mount Zion. Instead of focusing on religion, focus on the relationship. This is what Jesus was really after. He wanted to be in relationship with us. And as a result, we now receive a birthright. This is the beautiful promise of the new covenant, is that we receive a birthright as a son. Now, you may wonder, how is that possible? Verse 24 makes it clear. Here's how it's possible. Through Jesus, the mediator. Not through anything you can do. Not through any action that you can perform. Not through any gift you can give. Not through any uh, labor you can labor into. But simply through Jesus the mediator. By believing in him. By believing that he can do it. He is the one that will go between us. That now gives us access to the holy of holies. The author and the finisher of our faith has made it uh, possible. And yet what does he really want from me he wants me to take him at his word simply believe simply believe that's all he's looking for for me to confess with my tongue and believe in my heart that Jesus is the Christ believe him at his word the question I wonder often is why do I struggle with that why why do I struggle to just simply believe I mean who's my next plan to believe in? Me? I got to tell you, of all the people that have let me down in my life, nobody has let me down more than me. I consistently let me down. I am shocked at me. I am appalled at me. Like, I can't believe I would do that. But here's the thing. God is not. He's never been shocked. He's never been surprised. In fact, what uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says is that while I was still a sinner he died for me what he has given instead is uh, mercy this is the difference between the blood of Abel and the blood of Christ it's mentioned here in verse 24 you might remember the story that Cain uh, his brother was bitter he was upset over the blessing that Abel had received and so as a result his bitterness caused him to kill his brother and when the Lord came down to communicate, he says to Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? And Cain's response was, well, am I my brother's keeper? How do I know? And the Lord said that the ground that his blood spilt on cries out for you. Judgment and justice is what the blood of Abel called for. Cain had judgment passed upon him because of what he had done. But here's Christ. That while Abel didn't deserve to die, no one deserved to die less than Jesus. No one deserved to die less than him. And yet his blood spilled out on the ground for you and I. What it speaks of is mercy and forgiveness. This is why he is so much better as a sacrifice. Why his covenant is so much better for us. And as a result, because of his blood sacrifice... I now have the ability to be called a son. You have the ability to be called a son or a daughter of a king. That's our birthright. And what he promises to do inside of that is then give us a blessing. Don't know what it's going to look like for you, but he is is good as a father to give us a blessing, all because of his blood that gives us the opportunity to have a birthright. Now, as we continue, verse 25, See that you... Do not refuse him who speaks for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven this is the fifth warning in the book of hebrews of the five warnings we've gone through whose voice then shook the earth but now he has promised saying yet once more i shall not only i excuse me yet once more i shake not only the earth but also heaven. Uh, Know this yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken as of the things that are made and the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And so his promise is uh, to shake us up a little bit so that the things that uh, could remain, that will remain would be seen and the things that would not remain uh, would fall away. For the prophet Isaiah, when he began... His career, he started off under one of the best kings in the history of the nation of Judah. I mean, Uzziah the king was the man. He had conquered nations around them. There was great peace in the land. They had wealth. I mean, this guy was one of the best kings in the history of Judah. And this is who Isaiah gets the opportunity to begin his career serving under. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It wasn't until Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. You see, while Uzziah was alive, while he was there, he could be put in place as an idol, somebody to look up to, somebody to think that he had it all together, that he was sitting on the throne, and so I felt safe and comfort, and yet the Lord allowed it to be shaken up. Uzziah passes off the scene, and what does Isaiah see? But the Lord, high and lifted up. He is seated at the throne. And this is so often the case for us, that we don't see the Lord because we've got idols and things in His place. We're blocked, our vision is is skewed. We can't see what's really happening. And and then I'm prone to trust in things that are frankly not trustworthy. It's not that Uzziah was bad. He did a good job as a king. It's that he wasn't God, you see. And so many times we put things in place. They become idols to us. They're not necessarily bad in and of themselves, and yet we can quickly make them a god. We can look to them instead of looking past them in seeing him seated at the throne. In my commentary, this is what uh, Chuck Smith says. When he died, Uzziah, the people were distraught. But, when, but that was when the vision of the Lord sitting on the throne was revealed to Isaiah. Sometimes God has to remove our heroes so that we can see he is on the throne. Anything that obstructs our view of the Lord needs to die so that we can see him high and lifted up. What thing is there that I have put in place that needs to die, that needs to go away, that needs to pass on so that I can see the Lord on the throne high and lifted up? This is what he is promising to shake away here in these verses. Therefore, verse 28, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In light of all this, we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We can put our trust in him because a little uh, highlight into next week's chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is the same uh, today, uh, yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. The same yesterday, the same today, the same forever. He will not be shaken. He will not be moved. And so I can put trust in him. And what these people were wanting to do is they were thinking about going back to their traditions, back to their own uh, intellect if they're wired like me, back to our own wits. And what the Lord is saying is I want you to focus your attention on something that cannot be shaken, something that cannot be moved. And instead of looking to yourself, look to the cross. Look to the cross which speaks of his grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. This is what he is willing to give uh, to you and I who most of us have a very shaky track record, right? A track record of, of deception and manipulation, and what the Lord's saying is, let me shake that up. I'm not surprised by this whatsoever. I already quoted this verse, but Romans chapter five, verse eight says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In spite of our mess, in spite of our fumbles, in spite of our failures, we cannot shake his love for us. We can't shake him away. Finally, verse 29, <clears throat> for our God is a consuming fire. Beautiful way to wrap up this morning. You know, churches have all different kinds of names out there. Um, if you've uh, been around, I encourage you to just kind of look around. Oftentimes what you'll see is if a church split off from another church, they'll tend to name their new church whatever they felt like they didn't receive from the previous church. So if you got First Baptist Church over here. Then you got Grace Baptist Church over there. Because well, we didn't get any grace over in that place, so we're going to name this one Grace Baptist or the the Church of the Open Book. We didn't even open the book. Let's name the church that. But in all the names I've seen of all the churches I've ever driven past, I have never one time seen a church called uh, the First Church of the Consuming Fire. I mean, can you imagine that? Welcome to First Church of the Consuming Fire services will be Sunday at 10. Can't wait to see you. Like nobody's excited about coming to that church. Nobody's getting fired up. No no marketing person is going to put that on a billboard. And yet, verse 29 says our God is a consuming fire. This is a part of his character. The question is for most of us, if I trust him, I wonder if I'm just going to get burned again. But that's not the best question to ask. The better question, I put it on the screen, is this. What does my God, who is a consuming fire, want to do in my life? What does he want to burn up in my life? And this is something that I thought of all on my own. Um, The things he wants to burn up are the things that are flammable. Yeah, the things that burn are the things that he wants to burn up in our life. I oftentimes bring a big old pile to the Lord. Lord! Lord! Look at all the good things I did. Look at all the stuff I piled up for you. And what the Lord says is, (sighs) wood, hay, stubble, my own selfish desires, and they all get burnt up. And the things that last are the things that aren't flammable. They're the things that are eternal. They're the relationships that are founded on Christ. They're the people around me. They're the things in me that he has made to be eternal. And what the Holy Spirit does, who by the way, Acts chapter 2 verse 3, when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church, what they saw was a flame of fire. You guessed it. And what he does is he goes into our lives and he burns up all those things that are wood and they're hay and they're stubble and they're frivolous. And he just says, and instead what he desires to do is he desires to heat me up and you where we are like liquid metal where the impurities rise to the top they can be scraped off to the side and what is left behind is pure. It is strong. It is able to withstand the pressures and the fires of this life. Our God is a consuming fire. Now thinking that that might not be the best way to end here's what I looked up. Um, This Word consuming this week. What is this what does this word have correlation to in the Greek? And the words that came back were um, diligent, intense, intentional. Our God is a diligent, intense, unrelenting fire. One last place in the text we'll go as we close. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. <clears throat> In this scene, Jesus is headed uh, towards Jerusalem. He's passing through Samaria, and uh, verse 51 is where I'll pick up. Now it, it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that means his exit off this earth, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew exactly what he was in store for when he arrived in Jerusalem. They were going to beat him, they were going to put him on trial, they were going to nail him to a cross. And as he knew that this was going to take place, he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. It literally means he locked his jaw with determination, with intensity, with a fire in his eyes is how he made his way to Jerusalem. Our God is a consuming fire. And what he is consumed with is pursuing you and me. He is so diligent that he will not stop until he's burnt up all of my lies and my deception, all the things that I've tried to convince myself I did a good job of. And he says, son, I gave my life for you. I am pursuing you with that same kind of intensity." So I want to encourage you this week. As God, maybe He burns some things up in your life. That while it may feel like discipline. It may feel like some heat's being applied. Understand that with that same determination, He pursued you. He chased you down. He allowed Himself to be nailed on a cross. And His blood to be shed for you. On your behalf. That's how much He loves you. Intensely. In a consuming way. So Father, I thank you and I praise you for being a consuming fire in my life. Sometimes it burned, Lord. It hurt. It felt like the pain wasn't going to stop. And yet at the end, what I've been left with more often than not is the realization that you so intensely And intently love me that you refuse to let me go. That you refuse to stop pursuing me. To consume me. Father, I thank you for being a consuming fire. I thank you for loving us with that kind of intensity and with that kind of passion. Father, I pray as you heat us up that you would point out all the ways that we can examine our lives and let you scrape off the impurities and be more and more holy, more and more like you every day. Thank you, Lord, for what you're up to. In Jesus' name, amen.